Welcome to this week's episode of The Clarifier, where I speak to Talentism founder Jeff Hunter about co-founder relationships. Jeff himself has been a co-founder numerous times and has coached dozens of co-founders and co-founding teams. There are times where, and I've worked through any number of these co-founders, I think they actually have a pretty toxic relationship right from the very start. Uh, It's very power dynamic based. It's very ego based. It's by ego. I mean, like how I'm more interested in being right than rich. We learn in this episode what tends to put pressure on co-founder relationships, why there's often strife once a honeymoon period is over. We learn what to do in particular when you find yourselves in situations where it's difficult to know how to make the right call, who gets to make the decision. I invite you to listen if you're co-founder dating, if you're in a co-founder relationship that's all roses right now, or if you're in the middle of a period of difficulty with your own co-founder or co-founding team. Okay, Jeff. So today's um, episode was inspired by a conversation you and I actually had recently um, with an acquaintance of yours who was reflecting on a co-founder relationship and thinking about the lessons she had learned and how to port those forward as she looked for her next co-founder for her next venture. Um, So before we jump into this topic and why these relationships are unique and often challenging, I'd love if you could just share with us your own co-founder experience. Um, You have been a co-founder multiple times in the ventures that you have started and built, um, and you have coached many teams of co-founders. So just um, bring us into that so so we know your experience a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Angie. When when you told me you wanted to speak about this topic, I spent the weekend reflecting upon my co-founder and founder experiences in that journey. Uh, and that journey actually starts when I was 18, when my uh, friend Brad, uh, we went to high school together and then went to college together. He came to me and he said, hey, I know we have to go get jobs. This was the summer after our freshman year or approaching the summer after our freshman year. He said, I know we have to get jobs, but I've got a better idea. Let's start a company. And from that, uh, he became lead partner and I was, I was co-founder. He was lead uh, founder and I was co-founder on a company called Bengal Marketing Group. And uh, that was my first co-founder experience at the tender age of 18. Uh, and then I think uh, the next one was probably uh, I, did, I founded a company called Hunter Group Services all by myself in 20, in, uh, when I was 25, and then founded da- co-founded DataMain with uh, Dr. Mitch Weil, then uh, co-founded Employment Engineering with Tom, Tom Ballo. Uh, yeah, so there, there's a lot of like founding, co-founding sorts of relationships I've had and talentism. I, I was single founder. Uh and man, I, I, and whenever I'm coaching the many, the many clients I have who are co-founders and going through the particular struggles of being co-founders, I often just feel their pain because mm-hmm. I remember being in those situations myself. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult and fraught relationship. And I have to say the most challenging coaching I've ever had to do over the last decade which has really been my full-time focus has been co-founder relationships. That's, that's like a high wire act compared to all other forms of coaching. So I was excited to talk about this just because there's such a rich history there for me, you know, 40 plus years of working on this. 
Thank you for sharing that. I, I definitely don't have you beat in terms of quantity of experience, but age at which I first had the co-founder experience, I have you beat. It was in fifth grade. And uh, it was a group of girlfriends and I, and we formed a group that performed as the Spice Girls at little kids' birthday parties. And let me tell you, when you're in fifth grade performing at a kindergartner's birthday party and they think you're the real Spice Girls, it's pretty great gig. <laughs> but, yeah. even then, but even then, I think some of the implicit power dynamics that we're going to talk about in this show, uh, they emerged and, and they may have even been rougher. Uh, in the age of 12 and 13. Um, But I I want to get into it. So um, tell me what is inherently different about the co-founder relationship as compared to other professional relationships and relationships between executives at a company? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm not sure it's useful to look at it as a professional relationship. Uh, I've never seen a professional co-founder relationship, professional as described by the standards and norms of we will be professional with each other. I've seen it much more like a personal relationship that has a professional context. And while I don't claim to be an expert in any way, shape or form on personal relationships, I I did have an, an interesting experience early in my career, which helped formed my thinking about this. And that was when I was the executive director of a nonprofit called Winners on Wheels uh, that uh, a founder-led nonprofit, by the way, but I was executive director. And as I, I, it was, it was basically a scouting program for kids who had mobility challenges. And what you realize when you, when you got into that world is that the parents of kids with these mobility challenges were experiencing stresses that most of us can only imagine. Mm -hmm. And that in those stresses, what you would see is uh, much higher divorce rates, much higher separation rates, much higher uh, incidence of poverty, those kinds of things is like the, the difficulty of trying to navigate a challenge like that with something you dearly love with your child puts an incredible pressure on the relationship and it's, it's all marriages, all personal relationships are fraught. They're very difficult. Humans aren't good at relationships, even though we're very relationship centric as a species. But when you put a personal relationship under the microscope of a lot of other people, healthcare providers in that case, you know, social workers, et cetera, in the case of founders, you're putting them under the microscope of venture capitalists, employees, uh, you know, other stakeholders, mentors, advisors, and you put it under that microscope and you've got something you love dearly and it's challenged, you see the relationships fray very quickly. And one of the things that I started to realize is there's a number of cases I'm think I've thought through again this weekend in preparation for this, where I was like, what was this this founder relationship, co-founder relationship was so good and then it got so bad. Or when I uh, encountered the found, co-founder relationship, it was so bad. Why? And the only thing you can broadly correlate it to is the health of the business. Mm. When the business was easy and healthy, the relationship was strong. And when the business was fraught or struggling in any way, then the relationship was fractured. And... 
I think having a a productive relationship in the midst of a context of something you care deeply about that is under stress and under challenge is incredibly difficult. And there's a number of other things that I that we'll talk about during the course of this this podcast. But that to me was the one thing you could really correlate. And as a matter of fact, you could almost track it because I went through various case studies just to prepare. Uh, and there was this one case I was thinking of as a group of co-founders. They were just killing it. And every time I got in the room with them, they would say, this co-founder thing isn't that hard. It's really pretty easy. And and they were just constantly sort of like, you know, jiving with each other and, and the whole thing was in flow. And, uh, and then they had their first bad month. And quite literally the next month, the relationship started a fracture. And that was just one of many cases that I came up with. So I think the, the reason I also think this is important right now is, as you and I have talked about many times, I'm seeing the stress increase in the world of the co the founder and co-founder, higher cost of talent, higher cost of growth, you know, higher cost of capital. Uh, and then, you know, one final thing I'll say about the stress that co-founders are under, uh, there's a, there's the post pandemic phenomena, which I think people are coming out of that and that really stressed relationships in fundamental ways. But the other thing I just realized last week, I was out on the road talking to a number of uh, venture capitalists. And one thing I heard consistently from all of them, which surprised me, it was in sort of a whisper, they aren't out there ready to, to broadcast it, was that they think the days of being quote unquote founder first or founder friendly are at an, at an end. Mm -hmm. And that was that they would be much more willing to pursue uh, having difficult conversations with co-founders in early stages if they felt the co-founder wasn't really adding the value that they expected them to. I think that's just another sort of stress factor that co-founders are going to be going to be dealing with. So let me see if I can put together the pieces I'm hearing for you. I think, number one, I framed the question by asking you, why are co-founder relationships different from other professional relationships? And I'm hearing the loud answer to that is because mostly they're personal. They may take place in a professional context, but mostly they're personal, often because there was a personal relationship that pre-existed the co-founder relationships. And, and even if not, even if, you know, somebody did co-founder dating to find the person they wanted to start their business with, often the nature and the intensity of what you're building together makes it more personal than explicitly and exclusively professional. So you've got a personal relationship that has all the characteristics of personal relationships. Um, and then you've got a professional context, which means a few different things. It means scrutiny from others investors, board, employees, customers, market, et cetera, which changes the dynamic, right? Most personal relationships occur in a personal and intimate environment, but this is a personal relationship that's happening on stage. And then the other thing that I hear you saying is we're in a moment in time where um, there are a lot of stressors that co-founders are feeling that have to do not only with the normal ups and downs of building a business, but the macroeconomic forces that are putting pressure on people who have started businesses, right? And you referenced some of them around cost of capital and changing mindset of venture capitalists around whether to prize and glorify founders or whether to sort of put more pressure and, and sort of turn the screws on them. 
Um, so I'm putting those pieces together. And now I'd kind of be interested to hear from you because I, I, I suspect that you have thoughts on this. What actually happens between co-founders? You've seen it over and over again. When you have that personal relationship and you have that public high stakes context, what breaks down? And, and how could somebody who's sitting in a co-founder seat see themselves in the picture that you can describe for us about what breaks down? Well, there's a number of, there's a number of different things and I'd like to, you know, I'd like to go through all of them. But the first thing I was thinking about today is, um, so when I started talentism, I was very explicitly, I said, okay, I'm just going to be the only founder. This is sort of my unique vision. It's my vision at the philosophy level, the system level, the model level, the product level. It's very rare you're trying to innovate across all those dimensions. I can't imagine anybody's going to be a good partner with me in the early stages while I mess everything up, et cetera. But when, but when you know, I, I was talking to Christina Sass about starting Dive In, our venture capital firm, and uh, I was very clear that I needed a co-founder for that. I could not do that by myself. And when we were talking in the early days, it was, there was a lot of talk about shared vision and we'll, we'll go into that. But the thing I said pretty explicitly up front is I said, look, I, I think you need to be lead founder and I'll be co-founder. This needs to feel like yours. And I am the co-founder supporting you on that journey. I want to be a co-founder. I want to be a person who's adding that level of strategic value and insight at the beginning, another set of hands, somebody who can be relied upon. I want this to feel like my baby. So like I live and breathe with this thing, like only really a, a founder or co-founder can. But I think you, you're the, the important one here. I'm, I'm not the important one. And uh, that's, a, that's a model I had deployed in other places and seen relatively be successful when it's deployed, and it rarely is. And so the question I always ask myself when, you, when you've got these founder, co-founder dynamics is, it, it's, a, it's a very tough question, but if some one of these two or three, one of these people left, what would be the state of the organization? And that question is different at different stages of growth of the organization. And it also is different based on what kind of organization it is and its business model and what it really needs to succeed. Venture capitalists really like technical founders or co-founders and technical businesses because you want that DNA right from the very start. You don't want it to be a bolt on later. Uh, but then, of course, that puts them in the position where technical founders uh, are not typically great managers. They're not typically people are practiced in that. They don't typically come from those schools of thought. And then there can be a very bumpy road at the beginning with a technical founder or co-founder because they're viewing everything purely through the effectiveness or efficiency of the technology, not through the overall business that causes tensions with everybody else. And so in those cases, you really have to be clear on who is the necessary person in order for this thing to win. Mm -hmm. uh, and this will connect into a thing I'll talk later, uh, uh, talk later about, which is the psychology of a founder in this thing called writer rich, which is also where a lot of a lot of co-founders get out of sync. But uh, this thing of, OK, who's going to be the lead founder for this problem and who's going to be the lead founder overall? Uh, those questions are rarely asked. It's it's a it's a fraught set of questions because 
this there's always a pretty uh, a pretty um, a specific dance going on around egos around people's fragility with regards to like I'm really important I'm more important than you all the things that are very much about human psychology not about anything specific to founders or co-founders but the question of who's the lead founder always comes up always eventually it's always a debt to be paid and uh and if you can address it early and make it situational in the beginning so you sort of get in that practice you can really get ahead of a lot of problems later on this may be so obvious that many of us would blow past it but let me ask you why does there need to be a lead founder what is so implicitly unworkable about having equal partners running something Because for the most part, people aren't equal in any particular moment. So, so in any particular moment, it, assuming that what you're trying to do is advance the business. By the way, that's an, I'm being explicit about that assumption. It's not always the case. But at any particular moment, there's going to be somebody who has the right answer and somebody has the wrong answer. And there's going to be somebody who has really good skills and somebody has less good skills and somebody has a great judgment and perspective and less good judgment and perspective. And so what you find is about group decision-making of any kind is when you're trying to drive towards a consensus in a very, very short period of time, not a like, let's build trust over time. There's some great consensus models, but most startups are not a, we've got lots of time to build consensus, to learn about each other, to have dialogue versus discussion, all those things. In a very short period of time, um, what you find is that when you have consensus-driven decision-making, you get worse decisions because people are trying to play to the lowest common denominator. What is the one thing we can all agree on here, not what is the right thing we can agree on here? And so it becomes very difficult in those situations to advance the interest of the business when you're having an ego battle with each other about making sure you get equal credit or making sure that you're on the stage too. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to put the business first in those cases. And so if you have the concept of, hey, we're with regard, maybe with regards to the, the capital pool or the equity distributions, maybe with regards to titling, whatever, we can call ourselves equal in all sorts of ways. But we should abide by the principle that there's going to be somebody who has clarity in a moment and somebody who has confusion. And there's going to be somebody who has experience and somebody who doesn't have experience. And somebody who is like highly self-aware and can put themselves in the picture of another person who can't. And that'll vary by context, right? That'll just vary by context. And if you can't have someone say, I can take the lead here, um, then you will be sort of going to least common denominator thinking. I can imagine there are folks listening who are having maybe a conscious or unconscious allergic reaction to what you're saying. Um, I speak to a lot of leaders and 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 members of sort of co-founder relationships, co-founder teams, I think, who um, really do... Uh, want to avoid having an authoritarian culture, a single decision maker ruling by fiat. And I think what I'm hearing you say is in the moments where debate and conversation can happen in a um, open and fluid and curious and sometimes even vulnerable way, 
that sure, you might be able to have a great conversation where people who feel like equals can put their ideas into the mix and disagree and come up with, with the best path forward, but that the reality of most business contexts don't allow for that. And so in those moments where decisions have to be made rapidly, uh, most people will bring to the table their perspective and not curiosity to understand and build something new and will be trying to push for their perspective. And I think if you're trying to get to consensus when two people have their own idea, like you said, what you're going to get is the smallest thing they can agree on, That's which right. is unlikely to be the best path forward for the business. And, right. and so in that model, uh, the only way to have um, decision-making that isn't about lowest common denominator, but is actually about somebody's rich thinking is to choose which person's thinking is going to win. Yes. And the, the thing I would say is there's, there's of course, some, some extra levels to this. I really like the form of two-way doors versus one-way doors decisions. That's the Amazon phrase. There's lots of different, you know, things around this. But to me, at least for co-founders in the beginning of a relationship, in the beginning of a company, and by beginning, I mean first three, four years. I don't mean first three. Like, you, you actually are dating for a very long time as co-founders. You think you're married and you're actually dating, and that's another problem that exists. But um, in the beginning, you actually are trying to be the best you can at learning about the other person as you are lear and learning about yourself, as you're learning about the business and you're learning about the market, you're learning in all those areas. And you and I talk a lot about speed of learning. And so what's a great way to learn fast? Just give on two way door problems to see who has a better track record. So if you're going to say, okay, like we can't decide on who's going to be lead found a uh, lead founder. Okay. Great. So you take this two-way door. I'll take that two-way door. Let's just see who has a better track record. Let's learn about each other over time. And But let's not have that be we're using one-way door thinking on two-way door problems. Just to be clear for people who don't know, one-way door is like it's really, really hard to reverse a decision. The cost of failure is extremely high. Two-way door is like you probably are good enough at 80% of the information. You're probably good enough to just get going and learn something really fast. And if it doesn't go right, it's really about the recovery and what you learn from that. So I, so there are times where, and I've worked through any number of these co-founders, I, I think they actually have a pretty toxic relationship right from the very start. Uh, it's very power dynamic based. It's very ego based. It's by ego. I mean, like how I'm more interested in being right than rich. So let, let me describe that phenomenon because that's a, a phrase I use a lot with co-founders. And this is something where I see a failure pattern a lot. There are people who get who seek power because they want status and authority. And there are people who seek power because they want a particular outcome. And so they're you know, not to use another Amazon phrase, but they're very strong division and very loose to rules. And other people are like, vision's nice, but I'm strong to rules. Like this is, it's got to work this way. It's got to go this way, et cetera. And what I have found is a lot of co-founders are not in sync 
on whether they want to be right or what they want to be rich. They think they are because they talk a lot in the beginning about the big exit or their dreams of like, what happens if we're a billionaire, you know, all those kinds of things. But their lived behavior, what they do shows a very different path. It shows a very different, like, I'm going to be stuck on this thing. And when, so when I refer to ego, what I'm saying is there's an out of syncness with regards to the two parties, with regards to the necessity of one of them to be right. Mm. The, the fragility that they have is around the psychological fragility is around being proven wrong. Yeah. And so this causes a couple of problems. One is those people will always slow down decision-making. Those people will not learn very fast and they make relationships incredibly difficult because it's my way or the highway. And so that can sometimes work in a super powerful lead co-founder relationship that I'm thinking like the Bill Gates, I'm thinking about the Elon Musk's. It's like most people think they were just the founder. No, there is no big success story you've heard of that wasn't a co-founder. And I, and I believe McKinsey was Jeff's co-founder at, at uh, Amazon. And so like, I don't think there's any great big success story that's single oriented founder. It's typically like why venture capitalists really orient to the model because they've seen so many successes with the, with the co-founder model. But the but in each of those, it was Mark Benoff at, at uh, Salesforce. They are clearly the lead, mm. either by dint of their personality, the force of their personality, or how other people come to gravitate towards them. We don't talk about Paul Allen a lot. We talk about Bill Gates. We don't talk about Steve Wozniak a lot. We talk about Steve Jobs. And these kinds of things, those dynamics take place very fast. But what I experience is a lot of co-founder relationships where there's not that one ultra-dominant player. They're both trying to dance the dance together, but one wants to be right and is unwilling to give on anything that wouldn't allow them, that would put them in a position where they can't have the ultimate authority on the decision they care about. And this causes really bad dynamics between the two of them. So if I'm trying to distill the practical takeaway for someone listening to this who is in a co-founder relationship or searching for their co-founder, I think I'm hearing you say, start with the talentism maxim that speed of learning is the uh, most important predictor of your success through time, right? It's directly correlated with your ability to build competitive ad advantage to adapt in your market. And in the beginning, you're learning about your market, your customers, you're learning about how to build an organization, you're learning about your investors' expectations, and importantly, you're learning about your co-founder. Maybe you thought you finished co-founder dating before you signed the incorporation papers, but you're still doing it. <laughs> and so there's an opportunity when there are moments of disagreement, and there's no obvious hierarchical structure that says, yep, this person's opinion wins out. There are opportunities to say, if this is not an irreversible decision, if it's not a one-way door, if it's a two-way door, let's choose one person's view because by making a bet, we get to collect data on that person's judgment. And what we're really looking to do is make data-informed decisions about who should make which types of calls for our company right? Because right. of their capabilities, their synthesis, the way they look at data, et cetera. Not, <laughs> we should be making uh, a design because of people's egos. 
But I think the reason you're saying it's so hard to sort of dispassionately say, okay, we're going to bet on you this time and we're going to bet on you the next time is because usually there's more ego involved in that relationship right? It's a personal relationship. There's probably something tied up in whose idea was this and who deserved to be CEO and all of those conversations that tend to happen along the way. And so being able to dispassionately say, great, let's just get some data. It's your call today and it's my call on Tuesday is a very difficult thing to do. And it, and it might feel like uh, you might, your brain might tell you, that's a dumb way to run a business. <laughs> Your brain might tell you, I'm not coming from ego. I'm coming with the best interests of my company in mind. Right. But the reality, if you could see yourself a little bit more clearly in that conversation, is probably there's some amount of ego and protection in the conversation. Right. And if you, again, using the, the lens of talentism IP, that's all, all that's going on. So I, I, this is always an uncomfortable truth and then a controversial statement, but this is all psychology, not rationality. Mm -hmm. This is all about people in context, filtering their environment, having reactions, mostly being confused or blind, reacting from that place, being surprised at how other people are reacting to them. That's the nature of what's going on. The co-founder relationship is especially difficult yeah. because, as you've said, the, all the power dynamics we're talking about here are implied. Mm -hmm. If you aren't making them explicit, there's no external validator. If I report to somebody, if I report to you on an org chart, that reporting structure actually has volumes behind it about what that means the type of relationship we have with each other what is allowed and you know permissible and impermissible and all those kinds of things if you're next to each other on an org chart and you're at the very top of it those rules don't apply anymore there is no rule book for that the the co-founders i've seen that are most successful over time have an incredible amount of personal mastery they have an incredible amount of seeing the big picture, understanding themselves well, having self-awareness, self-skepticism, all the things we talk about where we try to help leaders grow in their personal mastery as their ultimate competitive advantage. Most people aren't showing up for that. You know, most co-founder relationships start relatively early. It's not, I mean, heck, for, for guys, maybe their prefrontal cortex isn't even fully evolved at that point. There's, it, it's like they've been told they're geniuses because they went to the right schools or whatever. And, you know, what they sort of end up figuring out if they stay in the game long enough in the early days is you were born on third base and thought you hit a triple. Like you could barely even play baseball. And so in the early days, what you're doing, let's say you get lucky and you get great product market fit. You got a great product idea. You got great product market fit and you're off to the races. You think you're a genius. You just got lucky. And then in the midst of that, what you should be having is a lot of humility and a lot of investing in your co-founder relationship. Like, wow, you know, thank you so much for giving the opportunity. Really think of it just like at that point, trying to convert dating into a marriage. You're, you're not dancing the dance anymore of, hey, do you like me? Do I like you? Like you, your toenails are sort of long. I don't know if I could deal with that in the morning, you know, all that dating bullshit. Because all of that, if you've ever have been married a very long time, like that doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is can you communicate about the hard things? Will you create time in your schedule? Here's a practice I recommend for all co-founders. For goodness sakes, go have dinner at least once a month. 
go have dinner once a month and talk to each other about how you're feeling and your fears. Get off site because in an early stage startup, co-founders tend not to do that. They're in constant run mode. They're never building with each other. And yet the nexus of that relationship is their power source. If you take a look downstream of all these bad things that happen, when the parents are fighting, the kids get nervous, you know, that whole thing that happens with co-founders. We've actually measured how much productivity loss happens when the co-founders start going out of whack with each other. It's significant. It is measurable. Um, And so you've got this thing where this relationship really is the power source for what can be a lot of good inside uh, inside the enterprise, and yet they underinvest in it. They don't have appropriate tools for working with each other. They have low self-awareness. They each think they're the most valuable one. They each think they're the genius, blah, blah, blah. They actually both secretly fear, having worked through hundreds of these cases, they both secretly fear the other person doesn't like them. It's a bunch of dating shit, right? It's like, I don't think they... Did he say something about me? I can't tell you how many really uh, where I'm coaching multiple co-founders and they'll be like, what does he say about me? And I'm like, I'll pass you the note after the teacher's not looking. Um, But uh, it's, you know, it's what's hard about this is how are you going to invest in that? And then practically the thing we were talking about when you're running with each other, do you have a simple rule set for how you're going to run with each other? And if you don't, you're going to get out of sync and you're going to get into conflict and you're going to be afraid and not deal with the conflict because it'll be confusing. And then a lot of the nuclear energy that should be going into like driving the sub of the enterprise forward is actually going to go into heat just within the system. So I, I know one of the things we aim to do in these conversations is um, leave listeners with a practical takeaway. So there are at least two that I'm hearing and I'll, I'll toss it back to you, Jeff, to, to see what I might be missing. So the first one that I'm hearing is, uh, in any given moment where there is tension between co-founders and there isn't an external on paper org structure that would dictate who gets to make a call when there's contention and disagreement, there is likely to be a conversation that may look like logical debate that goes on between the two co-founders or multiple co-founders that in reality, if we could wear sort of like our emotional x-ray glasses, right, is actually a conversation where egos are fighting to prove worth, value, status, whatever it is that that person needs to feel. Um, And so given that, it is unlikely that that context is going to produce the best decision for the business, right? At best, it's likely to produce something that's sort of like agreement on a lowest common denominator. And at worst, it's likely to produce something where somebody is trying to be right rather than rich, is trying to look good rather than create a good outcome for the organization. So recognize that is an all too common trap, right? Co-founder disagreement on a particular issue within the business in a context where it's not obvious who gets to make the call. The Conversation sounds logical. Secretly, it's a fight about egos. Nothing good is going to come out of that. That will happen to you. (laughs) Okay. So when that happens, amazing if you've previously agreed on a set of rules around who's lead co-founder in which situations, because you've had honest conversations around who should lead when and who should follow when. But the reality is you probably won't have for every one of these situations. And so if you can at least step back and somewhat dispassionately say, 
someone should take the lead, whether it's a flip a coin situation or not, because at least we'll gather data. If this is not a one-way door, if this is not an irreversible decision, then the value of gathering data here is more than the value of getting right the choice of who should lead in this particular situation. So that's sort of practical thing number one I'm, I'm hearing you say. And practical thing number two I'm hearing you say is in order to be able to recognize when those situations are happening to you and go to that somewhat dispassionate place, you can't do that if everyone's running on empty. You can only do that if you have invested in regular intervals in the foundational relationship. If you have invested in feeling safe enough with each other, right? To have a code word, a safe word. Hey, this dynamic is happening to us again, right? Uh, and, and that takes uh, conversations where you're real with each other, where you talk about, in particular, what you're afraid of. Um, because that act of sharing, that act of vulnerability is what creates safety through time. So I'm hearing those two things. One is sort of like in the heat of the moment, you're going to have moments where you disagree and it's not obvious how to make the call. If you've agreed on who's going to be lead, great, let that person be lead. If you haven't agreed on who's going to be lead, then just make a bet to collect data and agree that you're going to look at the data. So as to be able to do that regularly, invest in a relationship of trust, safety, and good communication. That's kind of what I'm hearing. And by the way, Jeff, I think that's probably good marriage advice. <laughs> it, it is a uh, relationship after all. Yeah, I would, um, you know, I was just reflecting on when my wife, my wife and I've been married 31 years. And when we got married, um, we actually sat down and we came up with a couple of rules. And I think those rules have probably been the most effective part of our marriage. One of the things we said is we'd rather be bankrupt than divorced. We said, we said right from the very beginning. And that's because a lot of couples break up over money, right? Money be, creates security. Money creates same thing for co-founders. One's going to be like, hey, listen, <laughs> we should just invest, invest. And the other one's going to be like, no, I'm thinking of this one couple I dealt with where they were so on opposite sides. Been together for years, by the way, but so on opposite sides of that issue. And it was only once I got them in the room and say, what are you willing? You both are so deeply entrenched. One is so profligate. The other is so, uh, you know, so, so tight with their money what is a thing that is, is this the thing you're willing to break up over or is this there's some higher order good here? And so being able to get them to the root of that and see that they had a higher order good, they were both aligned to gave them that sort of central point they could go to and say, I think we're doing it again. As you said, like this thing's happening again. We both agreed this was more important. That was one. Um, number two is, you know, we shared a vision about where we what we wanted for our relationship and, and what the value was each of us brought to that. And while that sounds transactional, it wasn't. It was like I knew I did not like being an introvert. Mm -hmm. And my wife was an extraordinary extrovert. And she made me better every day I was with her uh, and still does. Uh, you know, it does, you can get a lot out of a relationship when you're clear on the value the other person's bringing to you. If mm. every day you're showing up and going, wow, that person is really, uh, that person is really making me better or they're delivering this, like looking for that virtue as opposed to the vice, looking for the thing in the partner sitting across from the table from you 
that is extraordinary to you and helps you and vice versa. Um, and then third is like, what is the, what is the end game? Where, where are you trying to get to? What, what are you trying to do with this business? What are you trying to do with this relationship? I would say, you know, to boil it all down, you got to go out for your dinners. You got to try to keep your pace of evolution tight together. Uh, when two, you know, we have that talentism principle when two or more people start in the same place, but evolve or learn at different rates, they get perpetually out of sync. That happens with co-founders all the time. That could be a whole nother episode. But the thing that really just strikes me is this relationship is the co-founder relationship is the very essence of the foundation of the entire enterprise, of its culture, of its vision, of its strategy, of its products, everything. And yet co-founders do not invest in that relationship. They treat it transactionally when it's deeply personal and it's deeply um, complicated. And when they treat it transactionally, they don't build trust with each other. They destroy trust with each other. And then they gradually spin out. So if you're at the beginning, let's say you're at the beginning of your journey and you're picking a co-founder, the question I'd have for you is, are you going to be willing to have difficult and honest conversations with this person about starting with you, where you're scared, where you're out of sync, what you think you're missing? Are you going to be willing to have that? Are they going to be willing to have that? Are you going to be able, in the midst of just incredible baloney, like, you know, the cap table's out of whack, this product doesn't work, we missed that launch, all this stuff that you're going to have to deal with, are you going to be willing to continue to invest in that relationship or not? And if you're not, then you should assume that you have a transactional relationship and one of you is going to be out the door probably around Series C or Series D. And you just have to figure out which one of you it's going to be. Um, and that's fine, but I don't think great companies get started that way. I think if I could um, pull out of that the one unexpected co-founder dating topic that uh, we, I would offer to anyone listening beyond figuring out if your skills are complementary, beyond figuring out if you're aligned on the vision, beyond figuring out if you want to work with the same kinds of investors, beyond figuring out if you share how you think about talent and compensation and all of that stuff. Can you, and practice it, don't think about it theoretically, can you talk about what you're afraid of with this person? Yeah. Because only in doing that act Will you be able to be sufficiently self-aware of what you're bringing to the table that's usually hidden, that usually deteriorates co-founder relationships? And only will you have the safety and trust to know that the person sitting across from you also has the self-awareness not to be driving from ego, but to be driving from what's best for the business and how might I and how might they unconsciously sabotage that because of fear. And so I think that question of, can you talk about what you're afraid about, really afraid of, um, is sort of an unusual co-founder dating question and, and maybe one of the most important. Yeah. It's difficult for human beings to do. I suggest if you want a great life, practice it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 